Welcome to If Then, a show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, December 11th. On today's show, we'll talk about the latest round of Tech CEO Goes to Washington. On Tuesday morning, that CEO was Google's Sundar Pichai, who appeared before the House Judiciary Committee, was asked about data privacy, location tracking, Google's plans in China, and of course, Republicans' favorite tech topic, conservative bias. We'll talk about what we learned from the hearing and what we wish Congress might have asked the tech CEO instead. Then we'll be speaking with two people who have been working to organize amongst workers in Amazon fulfillment centers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One is a founder with Awud, Nimo Omar. She's been working with the primarily East African communities that work in the Amazon warehouses there on a campaign to collectively advocate for better working conditions. We'll also be joined by a worker at one of those fulfillment centers in the Minneapolis area, William Stoltz. We'll ask him about his job at the warehouse and why he's joining his fellow workers in organizing for change. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, a couple of the best things we saw online this week. That's all coming up on today's If Then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we want to start this week with a call out to our listeners. We want to hear from you. Broadly, we're curious about how technology has impacted your life this year. So we have a couple specific questions. If you feel so moved, we'd be interested in hearing your answers. You can email us a voice memo of your response. Um, Send that to ifthen at slate.com, and we may use your comments in an upcoming show. Or just a regular email is fine, too. You can tweet to ifthenpod if a voice memo feels like too much work. Here are our questions. First, I want to know, has the news about Cambridge Analytica or Russian hacking or hate groups or any of the data breaches or any of the awful things that have come out about social media companies, particularly Facebook, inspired you to leave Facebook or use it differently? And if so, why and how? I want to know how the news has affected your relationship to this company that kind of is so much a part of how we communicate these days for so many people. Second, we'd love for you to tell us about either a piece of technology you decided was essential this year or one that you decided you could live without. That would be something separate from Facebook, I guess. It could be an app, a product, or a website. But tell us why it either captivated you or the opposite of captivated you. Again, we want you all to weigh in on these questions. To have your comments featured in an upcoming show, please email us, ifthen at slate.com. Thanks so much. We really look forward to hearing what you all think. All right, April, let's start with a bit of news. Tell us what's going on with Uber and Lyft this week. Sure. Both of the ride-hailing companies did file to go public last week. Uh, Uber, once publicly traded, to be clear, could sort a valuation of $120 billion. It's currently around $70 billion in valuation. Uh, Lyft is currently worth about $15 billion. Uh, Lyft is not as global as Uber and doesn't have as many other services, which is one of the reasons why, you know, it, it's not valued as highly. Um, but uh, but yeah, these are big numbers. And, you know, these companies could signal a wave of other companies that have been holding out on going public like Airbnb or 
uh, you know, slack, for example, uh, that, that that could happen next year as well. Yeah, it's been it feels like it's been a while since we've had a big U.S. tech IPO or at least a cluster of them like this. Uber was one of those companies that just was able to obtain so much money privately through venture capital that it seemed like it didn't really need to go public, uh, uh, at least until it really wanted to. Why do you think they're both doing it at the same time? Is that just a, a coincidence? Well, it's a race, right? And so whoever goes public first is going to be the first to attract that investor money that's been hoping to cash in and get get kind of investment in on the ride-hailing startup scene. And so if Lyft goes public first, then, you know, investors are going to go after Lyft first. And, and, you know, they might capture a lot of that investor interest before Uber hits the market and it could, you know, affect Uber's valuation later on. So it's 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 a race to be the first to get that investor money is really what it is. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting to see these companies, you know, talk about going public and, you know, being worth all this money because we have to remember that they hemorrhage a ton of money. I mean, I can't stress enough, Uber is not profitable by any stretch. In just the last quarter, which is just a three-month period, it lost over a billion dollars this year. So uh, so it's it's definitely um, such a strange economy to watch and track. And, you know, I think we're, we will see a lot of questions emerge, like what this will mean or won't mean for drivers and things like that. So something that we're certainly going to keep watching closely. And, and this is something that may play out uh, in the first half of, of next year. And it seems like it will be a bit of a race. And, you know, Will, beyond Uber and, and Lyft, and I actually took a Lyft to get here to full disclosure, right? This has become such an integral part of how we get around cities for many people. I got uh, here in a Lyft, too, actually. Today. OK, OK, there we go. And, you know, why aren't we using Uber? That's another question to ask. But uh, but but we won't get into that now. I want to hear what happened this morning in Washington, D.C. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, made his debut at a congressional hearing, right, at the House Judiciary Committee. How did that go? Was it is it over? Is it still going? These things can go on forever, right? This one was was mercifully short compared to some of the earlier nice. tech hearings this year. Nice. Um, and yeah, and so Sundar Pichai appeared today before a House committee. This was after the Senate had asked first Larry Page and then Sundar Pichai to come in September alongside Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg and Twitter's Jack Dorsey. And Google declined the invitation or they tried to send their attorney instead. And so the the Senate committee at that time went with an empty chair in Google's place, which was a pretty memorable move on their part. I thought that Uh, was I thought that was uh, actually a really good kind of thing that the the Congress did. Um, They were addressing the empty chair, too, throughout that hearing, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, I like that as well. Um, but Pichai came this time, and he was very, very matter of fact um, in, in his in his answers and his responses. The questions from from Congress ran a bit of a gamut. The most common question was from Republican lawmakers pressing Google on how it allegedly biases its product in various ways against conservatives. I didn't hear a lot of interest from conservative lawmakers in how it might bias, how its product might be biased against other people, which is a topic that we've talked about on If Then when we had uh, uh, Professor Sophia uh, Umoja Noble talking about how Google's search results often marginalize people who are uh, who are not in positions of privilege, people of color um, and and other minority groups. But uh, so Pichai did his best to sort of fend off those questions. There was one that that sort of had him on the ropes, which was. That was when Republican Representative Jim Jordan was pressing him on some emails from the head of Google's multicultural marketing department talking about Google's efforts to help turn out the Latino vote. 
Pichai didn't seem to have the the facts in front of him on that, and he he wasn't able to give a persuasive response. But we've seen this again and again, where where the biggest agenda of Republicans on Capitol Hill when it comes to tech is to sort of to lodge their grievances about the ways in which they feel that tech companies are downgrading conservative views or banning conservative voices or that sort of thing. Yeah, so they're really fixated on kind of the polarizing political questions that, you know, we don't really have a lot of evidence for when it comes to, you know, claims of conservative bias. But what we have seen on Google, though, are issues with how its, you know, search algorithm does, and on YouTube, rather, as well, uh, does surface, you know, conspiratorial answers to questions that you know, any everyday person might have or student might have, whether it's about, you know, climate change or whether it's uh, about the Holocaust. Uh, I think it was just last year or late 2016 when Google was uh, surfacing kind of Holocaust denial answers about questions uh, regarding the Holocaust and its search algorithm. I, I'm curious if, uh, if, if things like that came up and, and what your sense is about how well Congress understands how search works because, you know, we did see some uh, uninformed questions questioning Mark Zuckerberg. But my sense is that Congress probably understands social media uh, a bit better than it understands search. And I understand social media more than search because, you know, you have to have some literacy to use social media. Search is kind of a black box. Yeah, I think collectively the Facebook scandals have educated us all a little bit better about how social media works and how the algorithms work and all that sort of thing. And you're right. I think that's, that has probably happened less so with Google search to the point that uh, Pichai at one point was trying to explain to uh, one of his conservative interlocutors why searching idiot on Google might turn up Donald Trump's name in the search results. <laughs> he like had to walk through why that, how that could happen without some liberal oh, at funny. Google intentionally programming it to, to tie the word idiot to Donald Trump. But yet yeah, there was one question about a bias that, that we have seen a lot of evidence for over the past couple of years, which is in YouTube's algorithm. It's the bias toward extremism. And, you know, you kind of go down these rabbit holes. You ask a question like, you know, about Americans landing on the moon. And the next thing you know, you've got like flat earth videos and all these kind of wild conspiracy videos. Um, and Pichai did not have this. The question was from uh, Representative Jamie Raskin of, of Maryland. Pichai did not have a good answer. He gave this sort of anodyne response about how um, you know, well, with our growth comes responsibility. We're committed doing, to doing better. I mean, we basically just didn't have an answer. And, and, and he was able to get away with that because that wasn't at the top of, of Congress's agenda in this particular session. You know, finally, I'm, I'm curious uh, about whether or not uh, any members of Congress expressed interest in antitrust or limiting Google's power by kind of limiting the stranglehold it has on so many aspects of, you know, the Internet market. Yeah, I didn't hear a ton of interest from Congress in antitrust questions, but there was definitely one person at the hearing who was very interested in that. There was this activist who attends congressional hearings dressed as the Monopoly mascot, you know, Rich Uncle Pennybags. Yeah, with for a, sure. With a top hat and the mustache. And this person, uh, I guess their name is Ian Madrigal, they, they sat right behind Pichai. So you could see them on TV and on the live stream. They started out with one mus mustache and then the mustache got bigger. Then the mustaches started multiplying. So anybody watching, I mean, there, were some, there was a veiled reference to, to Google being a monopoly there, but there wasn't a lot of serious discussion of, of antitrust matters.
That's too bad, because, you know, when I think about Google, I think about all the companies that are kind of under the umbrella when it comes to Google Docs, when it or not companies, but components, right, where like they're the go to default thing that everybody uses. Gmail, Android, X, which is kind of spun out under Alphabet. But there's so many divisions under Alphabet that seems like, you know, would be ripe for kind of separating in some way. Uh, And the thing that kind of brings so many of the products at Google together is that they share the massive amount of data that Google collects on its users from from both, uh, you know, using search and then we put our queries into Google, but also from Gmail and shopping and all kinds of stuff that we do across the web. And I'm curious what Congress said about privacy. Were there questions about Google's data collection? So we do not have an overarching privacy law or a suite of privacy laws like they do in the, in Europe that were passed this year. There actually were some some questions about privacy some of them sharper than others. There were a couple of them that really gave fodder to critics of Congress for mockery. One of them, we can play a clip for you. It was from Representative Ted Poe, Republican from Texas. And he was really intent on grilling Pichai and just nailing him down on this question of whether Google is tracking him around the room on his phone. And so he was uh, being very dramatic about it and saying, it's either yes or no. It's not a trick question. So Google knows that I am moving over there. It's it's not a trick question. You know, you make $100 million a year, you ought to be able to answer that question. Does Google know through this phone that I am moving over there and sit next to Mr. Johnson, which would make him real nervous? It's his question. It's I, yes or no. I wouldn't be able to answer without looking at... Uh, you can't say yes or no. Uh, without knowing more details, sir. Pichai couldn't give an answer, and the reason is because Representative Poe uh, has an iPhone. It's not a Google phone. So, so Sundar Pichai couldn't answer his question without knowing what Google software is installed on that phone, because obviously Google does not make the iPhone. So that definitely gave Pichai an easy out on that very kind of important question, actually. And I, I wish that he didn't just punt that to to the obvious mistake that the congressperson made, but, but you know, earnestly answered uh, in the framing that, that he would be able to answer it in as if it was a question about Android. Yeah, I would have liked him to answer that earnestly, too, because the truth is Google probably is tracking a lot of us, even if we have an iPhone, because we have Google apps on it, of course. There was a much better framed question from Representative Ted Deutsch of Texas, um, but the, the irony was... He He spent so much time specifying the question that by the time Pichai gave an evasive answer, he had no time to follow up. Uh, And so that was just kind of left hanging as well. Yeah, sometimes these hearings can get kind of operatic if you let the kind of confusion from Congress all kind of blur together and and just take it as as one large movement. Um, but yeah, it's it sounds like it went about as expected and not necessarily something that's going to lead to policy change, but hopefully uh, something that will lead to more questioning of this very powerful company in the future. One thing that I wrote about in my slate piece on the hearings today is that this kind of inchoate confusion from members of Congress, it's easy to dismiss or laugh at, but it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, this is how a lot of Americans feel. They don't know exactly how companies like Google and Facebook are compromising their privacy, but they know it's probably happening. And the confusion leads to frustration and it could lead to to outrage and a demand for something to be done. So I could actually see some of these confused Congress people slowly coming around to supporting legislation, if nothing else, that, that, that forces Google to explain what it is doing, you know, GDPR type legislation that, that uh, requires tech companies to do a better job of explaining exactly what data they're collecting and making sure that customers really understand what they're opting into. 
you know, asks for transparency have been bipartisan in the past. So this might be something that we could see some organizing around. Yeah, I am more optimistic than I have been in previous hearings that there is that there is going to be movement on this eventually. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have my interview with labor organizer Nemo Omar and Amazon worker William Stoltz. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Complaints from workers at Amazon fulfillment centers and from delivery staff have been brewing for years. But this year, as Amazon continues to take leading roles in multiple industries beyond online retail, like cloud hosting and streaming video, and by national chains like Whole Foods, and its owner has risen to become the richest man in the world, there's been an increased focus on the working conditions in the fulfillment centers that are key to Amazon's Prime subscription program, which allows most all orders to be delivered to one's address within two days. That speedy shipping arrangement has led to troubling reports of harsh conditions at Amazon's more than 110 fulfillment centers across the country. According to a new report from the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, at least nine workers have died working at Amazon facilities since 2013. There have been reports of Amazon warehouse workers and delivery drivers urinating in bottles for fear of taking breaks, penalization for taking sick days, and the use of digital trackers that time how long it takes each employee to do each task measured down to the second. Amazon itself this year has distributed training materials to managers to discourage unionization. And during Black Friday weekend, workers in fulfillment centers in Spain and Germany protested their working conditions, and multiple strikes are planned for this month. Our guests today are Nima Omar and William Stoltz. Nima Omar is a co-founder of the Awud Center, an organization whose mission is to build economic and political power amongst workers in the East African communities of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And William Stoles works at one of the Amazon fulfillment centers in the Minneapolis area. He's been organizing with his colleagues at the Awud Center, where Amazon has sat down at the table with organized workers and has started to compromise and negotiate on some of their asks. Nemo and William, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Let's start with some quick background. Nemo, you helped found the Awood Center in 2017. Can you tell us a bit about what Awood is and why y'all formed? And is the campaign amongst Amazon employees your first campaign? Awesome, yes. Um, yeah, so the Awood Center was founded in 2017. Um, it's a community organization whose mission is to build economic and political power amongst workers in the East African community. And yeah, so Amazon is also uh, a campaign or a company that we've been helping workers advocate and talk about some of their issues at the workplace. Okay. And uh, and William, tell us a bit about where you work and what you do there. How long have you been at an Amazon warehouse? And are you a contractor for Amazon or, or do you work directly for Amazon? Uh, no, I'm a direct hire. Um, most of the people in my warehouse are direct hires. We just have temps right now for the holidays, but I've been there about a year and a half um, I'm a, an order picker, and 
basically that means that so the merchandise is out on these storage pods uh, and a robot brings it to my station and I have to grab an item in a certain number of seconds, put it in a tote and send it down the line to the packing area. Right. So you're really timed closely. And I want to get into that. Nemo, maybe you could tell us a bit about some of the gripes that have caused people to start to organize and and talk amongst themselves at the worker center. I've been doing this work um, for about a year and a half as well and starting to do last year. Uh, We've been having a lot of communications with with, uh, workers in the community, um, East African folks in in particular, about um, mistreatment and concerns at these warehouses. Um, I remember last year um, there was a bus that used to shuttle folks from Minneapolis. And, you know, when Amazon moved into Minnesota, they've, they, you know, they wanted workers to, to come to these warehouses and all of a sudden they've, you know, discontinued this bus. And a lot of folks were super um, um, upset about this. And William is actually one, was one of the workers and they've started a 200 uh, a worker petition and they signed it and they sent it to, to Jeff Bezos in, um, in Seattle. Um, as long as uh, there's also other um, issues around um, subcontracted comp- um, workers, uh, uh, that were driving vans um, in Egan. We had a case uh, with a uh, East African worker. His name is Daniel Baye, who was subcontracted um, to deliver packages for Amazon. Um, and he, you know, was listening to about about like two weeks of uh, work of, of wages, and he didn't get that back. Um, and so he contacted our, uh, you know, our office, and we got in contact, and you know, started to help him and figure out what was going on. Um, he's among um, other workers that were missing some wages at the sub contracted companies. And so after weeks of, you know, you know, protest and just, um, you know, sending letters to these these subcontract companies that were working for Amazon, he won hundreds of dollars in, uh, in payback after fighting. And so in, in the past of, of doing this work, we've met workers like Aunt, like William, who's been outspoken, um, Hibak, uh, who's an, another outspoken um, worker, and who's also been featured in the New York Times um, about two weeks ago. And so workers are, you know, talking and having conversations about what are going on? What's going on in these warehouses? And and they want to make sure that Amazon listens to them, and make sure that these uh, things things change for the better, so that they can still continue to work and and feed their families. Right, William. Tell me about this this petition that that you you started. Uh, how did you kind of get this off the ground? Were you communicating on the buses? I mean, where where were you able to kind of start to communicate with folks outside of the workday to to get this? And what was the petition for? Um, well, I, I should clarify, it wasn't just me, um, sure. but I, you know, I was definitely, uh, you know, upset when they got rid of that old bus, just because that was the whole reason I, I got this job, uh, not having a car myself. But yeah, it just started, uh, um, started a lot of conversations, started getting people thinking about like, you know, here's this, you know, very like tangible issue. Like we used to have, you know, great transportation to work. Um, and now, and the other problem too is they cut it just before the um, the the winter of last year, um, and so people were concerned about safety. I mean, they Amazon replaced it with uh, by paying this other bus company to add an Amazon stop to their route, but overall the same trip takes twice as long. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it just uh, started conversations among workers about. Um, you know, this one particular issue in the workplace that seemed like, you know, pretty easy to support. But then, uh, you know, there are many other, you know, issues that people deal with day to day in the workplace. Like, you know, as far as myself and, you know, when I talk to the rest of my coworkers, the number one thing that 
most people seem to be concerned about is the scan rates. And so, like I said before, when I have to pick an item, I, yeah. I have to do that in a certain number of seconds and get a certain number of items per hour. And so the, the items per hour, that's the rate. And almost every department has a rate that, you know, always like just over the long term, always goes up, never goes down. Um, and so they keep pushing people farther and farther. You know, the, the consequences of that is that, you know, just the time that I've been there, I've, you know, seen lots of friends of mine get injured um, and you know, my warehouse, like it skews younger just because, you know, the work is so physically demanding, but even people who are, you know, in their, you know, twenties and thirties, um, you know, getting the kinds of injuries and having to worry about, uh, pain in knees and shoulders and things like that, where people shouldn't have to be dealing with that so young, you know? Yeah. And so how was it being addressed before? I mean, or let me step back. Has Amazon been kind of demanding higher uh, rates of productivity amongst uh, amongst its workers? Have you have you seen more demands coming from Amazon to y'all? And, and have they just not been addressing uh, the kind of, you know, workplace uh, health concerns that people have brought up? How, how have they been addressing that? And have you seen more uh, them trying to squeeze more work out of people? So the first... Um like the the first time there were a, a lot of us workers coming together to raise concerns to management about rate was um around Ramadan this past summer so mm-hmm. the you know so my warehouse there are a lot of um Somali Muslim workers or you know same with the other Amazon warehouse in Minnesota and so warehouses in Minnesota and so um if people don't know, um, when you're celebrating Ramadan, uh, people like fast all day long, no eating, no drinking, even water up until, I believe, until the sun goes down. And so you're still doing this very physically demanding job, having to meet these, you know, very fast rates. And so we, um, you know, a bunch of workers and some people who are involved in the bus, some not, um, just coming together around the, like, issues around Ramadan, just demanding like a, a, a lower rate, like some time off for um, people to celebrate uh, the Eid, the big holiday at the end with their families um, and a nicer place to pray. Uh, and, you know, management's response was that the rate is the rate and that's the way it is. Uh, but we did end up pushing them to, so now there's a place where on Fridays, um, uh, men, uh, men pray. And, you know, Nemo, I'm curious, uh, one of the things that about this organizing effort is that there has been um, reports of this being kind of a tight knit and very large community of uh, East African immigrants that are working at these warehouses. Uh, has that been kind of part of the success of organizing in that, you know, there's already kind of a community uh, amongst the workers that are outside of work? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um our main folk, like, so I'm an East African, I'm Somali, I'm an East African um, um, woman, and um, and so, yes, a lot of the workers that do work at these warehouses and at, at Amazon are on, um, 
a lot of majority of them, not majority of them, but a lot of, like a huge number makes up in East African community um, folks. And so what we were, um, stuff, what we've been able to do is basically um, uplift their voices and advocate and empower um, folks at, at these warehouses to understand that, that you have, you do have rights to talk about certain um certain things like religious accommodation, speaking your language when you're at the workplace. Um, if you feel like you've been discriminated, like what, what does that mean? And so we've been able to, in the last year and a half, we've, we've had a multiple um, know, your rights, know Your Rights training so that we've, uh, so the workers understand that their rights at the workplace and that it's okay um, to, to, to talk about these things um, outside, um, outside, your work, outside of work. Um, we do run our meetings in Somali um, and also in English. Um, we we have an interpretation as well for, for for workers that don't speak Somali. Has there been an issue with, uh, you know, some workers who maybe primarily speak Somali uh, having a difficult time communicating at work because there aren't perhaps managers that speak Somali at these warehouses, even though there is a large amount of workers that uh, that, that speak that language primarily? Has that been an issue? Um, so in some, in some um, uh, instances, so we've had workers that, um, so I'm not sure if you've, there's, there's been an action in Egan that happened in Ramadan. So it happened mm-hmm. um, this year during the summer. Um, and a lot of the workers, you know, protested because they were, you know, really bad um, working conditions, like heating wise, people fainting because they, you know, they couldn't drink water and they're working extremely hard. And one of the wow. demands, uh, and one of the and one of the things that workers actually uplifted was, hey, there's a lot of, you know, East African workers that work in this place, but there's no there's no management or there's nobody that's that can translate between these workers. And one uh, one win that workers are really happy about is that they've hired someone who can full time trans. I'm not sure I'm not sure about the time, but they've hired someone to translate and take surveys and kind of um, you know meet with them and talk with them. They've also uh, implemented put a uh, TV in the break room that's in English and Somali to translate some of the stuff, new updates. Um, and so even talking to workers, some workers feel um, that there needs to be change when it comes to hiring as well. Um, a lot of our, um, in our management meetings with Amazon, workers have uplifted and talked about that we need to see diversity and reflective of like East, East African workers inside the buildings as well. And I know William can speak on more about um, hiring and, and promoting, but a lot of workers do talk about that there needs to be some kind of uh, um level of interaction with the community to support the needs of, of these workers. Right, so they can communicate. And and to be clear, the, the organizing that's happening here isn't a union, right? This is a group working with Awud, uh, which is a nonprofit worker center, and kind of generally organizing around the large East African communities in the area and other workers uh, who, who are with Amazon there. And uh, you guys are helping workers to organize and make collective demands, but, you know, not as a, as a union. And Amazon's been known to be anti-union and distribute materials to managers to help give them tools to discourage organizing. Um, I'm curious, has Amazon refused to meet with you all uh, or discouraged the organizing in any way? Uh, you know, this is to, to either of you, uh, Nemo or William. Amazon's approach has, for the most part, been, uh, uh, you know, sending managers to talk with workers, say like, hey, if you have a problem, just, you know, bring it, you know, bring it to us. Um, you know, you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to go someplace else. You don't, you know, and, you know, now in recent weeks, like, oh, you don't have to protest. Um, but I mean, the thing is, it's like, you know, I mean, they can they can say that, and it, you know, if they say like, oh, don't uh, 
you know, or, you know, just bring your problems to management, bring your problems to HR. I mean, if the issue is you want a lower rate, well, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, you know, we had uh, two big meetings with um, uh, Amazon upper management for Minnesota back in September and uh, end of October, um, where we talked about, uh, you know, the, the issues at Amazon, things we wanted changed, um, you know, when it comes to like, you know, rate, uh, unfair write-ups, unfair firings, uh, injuries, um, guaranteeing time off for Muslim religious holidays, investment in the community. And, uh, you know, and we haven't gotten a, a good response from them on, you know, any of the uh, like big substantial issues that we brought up. You know, they've they've made some, you know, some adjustments, but um, nothing, nothing addressing the core issues. And so, you know, that's why we're gearing up for uh uh, you know, a protest on December 14th, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, they, you know, they keep saying like, Oh, just come talk to us. And it's like, we, we did, you know? <laughs> right. Right. And so, uh, Nima, what, what are some of the, the core issues that are not being addressed? Um, so, so like, um, William was talking about, we've met with the management and we facilitated, you know, these, uh, you know, we've had workers, you know, in, this, in, these, in these meetings with the met upper management of uh, Amazon in Minnesota. And workers were basically talking about creating a humane rate and workload. So um, ending um, also kind of the unfair right of folks striking. There's a lot of folks talk about firings as well, unfair firings that happen inside the buildings. Um, folks also mentioned that there needs to be some kind of guarantee and um, that, like, employee and community concerns are heard and taken seriously by local management. Um, a lot of folks over the year have mentioned as well that Amazon needs to respect the cultures of, you know, the East African and Muslim workers. Um, there's also um, an issue about uh, workers, you know, being penalized for um, prayer breaks and there's there's this thing called TOT, time off task. So if you're pretty, if you're, you know, at your station um, working and, you know, you step aside, you know, they will, you know, deduct some, you know, your rate will go lower because you're, you know, you've stepped away from your, your station. And that's something a lot of workers have mentioned as well in our meetings and also um, at this, uh, in between management, uh, between the Amazon worker meeting and management meeting, September and October. And so what do you guys hope to get out of this December 14th action? This is going to be a walkout or a protest. What do you hope to get out of it? Uh, so some of the workers who are um, going to be there that day will be working and then walking out, but we'll have others who are um, showing up separately. Uh, you know, I mean, we're really hoping that Amazon makes a movement on uh, on these demands. Like, you know, the, the biggest one is, you know, being the the rate that they just keep uh, keep pushing our, you know, pushing our, our bodies and our minds, you know, to the limits, like psychologically, like that does something mm -hmm. to you when you got to, you know, go every seven seconds. Um, and so, yeah. And so, but we also want to show the other workers who are feeling the same way, um, but who are afraid to, uh, to speak out, um, that, you know, that we've got, you know, a lot of community support behind us. You know, there are going to be other people coming who are not uh, Amazon workers, but just want to support workers. And, um, you know, like I said, I mean, we had these meetings with management and they weren't making the kinds of changes we want to see. So, um, you know, workers took a vote and we voted to, to take action.
Right. And and uh, Nemo, for, for you now, finally, I'm, I'm curious, uh, ha- is this been a scary prospect, particularly for, you know, uh, people who you work with who are, who are immigrants or, or have come to the U.S. as refugees and uh, and maybe are, are worried about pushing back against, uh, you know, a, a job? Um, so it's been a battle. It's been an uphill battle. And it's been there's been a lot of victories and a lot of successes within this campaign up for a year and a half there in the beginning stage it was extremely hard we've been like it was kind of like beating against a wall like the folks were not understanding like wait you can speak up there's this there's this huge barrier of like um you know this is your an authority like you can't speak up you know against this you know there's gonna be some backlash you're gonna get fired for it and what we've been able to do is you know hold these you know trainings um and raise awareness of around workplace workplace rights um and so due time you know folks were understanding hey i can speak up actually one of our like one of our you know leaders was saying i know i he's like i used to be the kind of guy used to like stay quiet and never used to say anything but now that i've been involved with the award center i'm able to stand up and speak out and so what we've learned is that you know it takes time but We've, we've learned that, you know, this is a community who's black, uh, predominantly like a black Muslim community, immigrant, some, you know, folks, refugees who are new to the country. A lot of our core members and core leaders, uh, core leaders are actually um, have been here not more than two years. And so being in a different country, not knowing the language strongly, but... And the one thing that really, you know, makes me like makes me proud of doing this work is that when I hear them say, you know, we've we've left a war-torn country, we've traveled, we've migrated, and we've come to a different country, but we're here to also stand up for our rights and make sure that the other Amazonians and other people in this country know that we're not just, you know, pushovers. We're here to make change, and and that really gives me hope to see, like, you know, a marginalized community that's overlooked like over and over again in this country is like, you know, doing the most like amazing work in, in right now in um in our times and demanding from like a trillion dollar almost a trillion dollar company. So it's 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 amazing and and it's and super um moving to see to see this community do the work. Yes, and and to, to call attention to the work that goes behind so many of the online orders that are amassing now ahead of holiday season. Uh, really uh, exciting to watch and, and look forward to continuing to follow this story. Nima Omar and William Stoltz, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. All right, one final quick break, then we'll have Will back for Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, Will, uh, what tab could you not close this week? My tab comes from the Pew Research Center, and this was a report that came out on uh, Monday, and the headline was, Social Media Outpaces Print Newspapers in the U.S. as a News Source. Now, I don't know what kind of surprise that might come as to people. I think some people would probably be surprised that social media is now more widely used as a news source than print. Some people might be surprised that it didn't happen a long time ago because we've been talking so much about the influence of social media on the news. But uh, this is a this is an important question. I think we there's a widely cited stat about like you know 50% of Americans get news from social media, but that's just people who say they ever get news. This is asking a different question, which is do you regularly get news um, from from this medium? And the percentage now for social media is about 20% of, of U.S. adults saying they, they regularly turn to it for news. Only 16% of U.S. adults now say they, they turn to print newspapers for news on a regular basis. So that industry, is its slow death is, is proceeding apace. The, the biggest medium is still television, but that's come down from 57% to 49%. April, I know you often talk about how we underrate TV news as an, as an influential news source. It is still the, the, the primary one for most Americans. And then below that, news websites at 33%, which I guess is good news for Slate, and uh, radio at 26%. One thing I'll say on this briefly is that, like, okay, that's how many people turn to radio for news. But something like over 90 percent of Americans, you know, in their teens and adults listen to radio every week. It's one of the most penetrating mediums and same for local television um, and television in general. Uh, And so, you know, I I, so interesting. And I just uh, also want to be sure we we realize how these mediums are are used in other ways beyond news consumption um and and how like penetrating traditional media forms are uh that that aren't the internet um but that's that's a really interesting study uh for my tab this week i have a new long form piece from music writer liz pelly it's called stream bait pop and it's in the baffler and it's really interesting. I'm in the middle of reading it because it just came out today. But uh, it is about the homogenization of music that has occurred under streaming services and the attention economy and how when songs are kind of created to be placed in playlists as opposed to be kind of full albums or packages that artists can sell, but rather created to to be streamed, uh, what that's done to music and uh, and arguing that that it's kind of homogenized music that it's it's made uh kind of mu- a lot of music sound the same uh one p- quote i want to read musical trends produced in the streaming area are inherently connected to attention whether it's hard and fast attention grabbing hooks pop drops and chorus loops engineered for the pleasure centers of our brains or music that strategically requires no attention at all the background music the emotional wallpaper the chill pop sad vibe playlist fodder these sounds and strategies all have stream bait tricks embedded within them whether they aim to wedge bits of a song into our skulls or just angle toward the inoffensive and mood-specific enough to prevent users from clicking away. All of this caters to an economy of clicks and completions, 
where the most precious commodity is polarized human attention, either amped up or zoned out, where success is determined almost in advance by data. Um, and basically, it's just the argument that that kind of the attention com- economy is uh, homogenizing art. And it's about how the structure through which we listen to and patronize the arts in uh, drastically changes that art. Um, and, and the economics behind that changes that art. Uh, and so I look forward to finishing it. I'm almost done. Uh, but I think it's really important that we critically look at how uh, the economics of how we consume, you know, creativity invariably changes and morphs that and and perhaps even dampens it. Yeah, I agree. It's important to look critically about about how the attention economy shapes art. I will say I have a lot of confidence in artists to to in the long run resist homogenization. I mean, this is what sure. artists are good at is is fighting back against homogenization. So but I have no is, doubt we'll see the backlash to this as well. But this is about like what becomes popular and what's served to us, um, and kind of when we hand over the. Um, a, the, the the picking of music that we listen to to playlists and and to algorithmic curators right like what's being served to us is it the lowest common denom- denominator that everybody is most likely to enjoy right or something like that and right and this and this this term stream bait pop I'm not sure if the, this article coined it or if it's been coined before but I think it's specifically referring to like a subgenre of music that's designed not to distract you, right? When you start streaming it on Spotify, it's going to be as inoffensive as it can so that you don't want to change it and and thus rob the artist of their of the money they get for each completed listen. Right. Or is this all music that's we're supposed to be able to work to at our computers, at our desks alone, right? Music that kind of facilitates uh, our own attention capture and, and our, uh, you know, lack of kind of uh, socializing in music and going out and listening to more difficult, interesting things. Um, you know, are we all kind of being channeled in a certain way to listen to art in a certain way? And so uh, I look forward to finish reading this. I do recommend people pick it up as well. I've really enjoyed what I've read so far. And guys, we have one extra tiny tab from uh, from our producer, Max. We love it when he has something to share. Max, what do you have open on your computer screen, on your web browser this week? Well, since we're talking about art and technology, I had to jump in. Have either of you seen the new movie, Roma? No, but it's one of the few new movies that I've actually heard about. So what is I basically it? never get to see new, new yeah. movies, so, so no. Also, <laughs> I no. I just have to read a lot. That's <laughs> my job. <laughs> So it's a new movie um, by Alfonso Cuaron, the director who did Gravity, right. Children of Men, Itumama Tambien. I really want but, to see this movie then. Yeah. Well, and so it's really interesting. Netflix, it's a Netflix movie, mm. and it's coming out on Netflix later this week. But part of the deal in order to get Oscar buzz and such was they agreed to put it out in theaters for a short time. So it's out right now, and I saw it, and it just... If you're able to go see it, if you can afford to go see it, I highly recommend going to see it in theaters. Um, so I'm actually recommending you close the tab entirely, go to the movie theater. You can watch it later on Netflix, but at least once if you can experience it in theaters. It's like such a beautiful movie. And I was, uh, yeah, I was very moved by it. So that's my recommendation. Oh, I'm excited for a film recommendation. Yeah, I think I, I will check it out. Thanks, Max. And that actually does it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. This is the part where I usually say, send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, just say hi. But actually, I'm going to go back to our earlier call. Send us your answer to those questions that we asked earlier. We would love to hear from you and, and potentially feature your response on our show. 
Yeah, share with us what you think. You can follow me and Will on Twitter. I'm at April Laser and Will is at Will Remus. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever other platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is the wonderful Max Jacobs. And thanks to Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California. Thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studio in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.